my name is David Abel. I'm the Chief Academic Officer uh, Unbounded for English Language Arts. And for today's podcast, we have with us Dr. Judith Hockman. Dr. Hockman is the creator of the Hockman Method and the founder of the Writing Revolution. Dr. Hockman served as the head of the Windward School in White Plains, New York, a nationally renowned independent school focused on teaching students with learning disabilities. She is the founder and senior faculty member of the Windward Teacher Training Institute and a former superintendent of the Greenberg-Graham Union Free School District in Hastings-on-Hudson, New York. Her work has been recognized internationally by organizations including the International Dyslexia Association and the Reading Reform Foundation, and she has authored numerous books and publications including Teaching Basic Writing. Judy, welcome to our podcast. Pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about the work you do, why you do it, and what inspired and or instigated this work. Okay. Uh, Right now, as Chief Academic Officer of the Writing Revolution, we're trying to disseminate a model of teaching written language, writing, to as many students as possible and train teachers because evidently writing instruction is not widely seen in the curriculum of teacher training institutions. And why do you just, this is, I'm jumping ahead to a question, which is kind of one I've been really eager to get into with you, but... Why do you think that is? Because this is something that I sort of lose sleep over. You know, it's a mystery to me because anywhere you go in academia, in the workplace, writing has been identified for a long period of time as a weak area. And it's difficult to understand. There's a great deal of research on reading, and yet there aren't that many higher institutions that teach reading the way research tells us Mm -hmm. it should be taught. So with writing, uh, being absent from the curricula is, is, a, uh, is a troubling situation. So what would you describe as the core principles of your work at the Writing Revolution? In a way, the name Writing Revolution is a misnomer. Obviously, we're looking to improve the way writing is taught in both elementary, middle, and high schools. But in addition... Writing can have a huge impact on how students think analytically and also their reading comprehension because we know that if students are taught to write more complex sentences, they're better able to process them when they encounter them in reading. So one of our aims is to help them write in written language structures with more complexity. And can you say more about the connection between reading and writing because for Unbounded, we are trying to sort of convey and perpetuate a integrated model of literacy, one that is described in the Common Core standards and other college and career-ready standards. And we feel like this is something that we are always struggling to make people know and understand. Both the beginning stages of reading, that means decoding, and throughout writing, you need explicit instruction to attain any kind of level of effectiveness. And writing is harder, and I say that as a former reading teacher. Writing requires the production of ideas with clarity and coherence. The connection is interesting between reading and writing. There are many of them, and people assume that if one is a very good reader, they'll be a very good writer, which is not the case, and I put myself right out there. You can read vociferously, and yet that doesn't mean you're going to be a fluent writer. Mm. 
there are things in writing that only a very good editor or a very good teacher can really explain to you. And those are the things that we want to explain. The, the other thing is we believe very strongly that from the earliest grades, the emphasis has to be on expository writing, writing that explains or informs. Digging into that for a little bit, a lot of <clears throat> elementary teachers have their beloved narrative writing unit. And so why, why expository writing? Well, beyond the fact that uh, it's what you're called upon most in life to do, very rarely will a future employer ask you to write your memoir or a poem. Usually you have to explain something or justify something or summarize something. And we found over many, many years of an evolving method that young children can be taught to do this very, very effectively, particularly when it's embedded in the content that they're studying and not pushed off to the side as a writing lesson. Mm -hmm. So if they're studying American Indians and they learn to write very good sentences about American Indians, that not only enhances their learning, but that will enhance their writing. Talk to me a little bit about the role of standards or just thinking about, and not necessarily the common core because, well, number one, it's many states is not called that, but just like where the writing standards of a, of a state or a district play into the work that you do. You know, we look at the standards in all of the states and in all of the work we do, and obviously we're, we're influenced by them to a certain extent, but we're influenced far more by the research that supports good, fluent, coherent writing. And what we found with the advent of the Common Core and more challenging standards is that the move away from what we normally think of as creative writing and self-expression toward expository writing is something that we believe in very strongly, and a lot of the work we do is focused on that kind of instruction. Thinking about you know your work with districts and your work with educators, what is when you go into a school or you're working with you know a bunch of people sign up for your professional development? What is the most common concern that you hear when you're working with educators? It depends on the grade levels that you're working with. In the middle and high schools, there's a very sharp sense of urgency. They didn't sign on to be writing teachers, and yet writing has moved to the forefront of national concern over the last few years, and rightfully so. A student who can't express themselves well when they move into higher education or into the workplace has a, a real ceiling on their opportunities. So the pressure on the students of upper grades is really acute, and they're frustrated, and they welcome a, a strategy, a set of strategies that will help them enhance the student's writing. In the elementary schools, it's a little bit different because they're used to self-expression and more of, as I said, what we think of as creative writing. And so in those schools, we're trying to, many of them seek us out, and we're also trying to get the message across that the earlier you help kids organize their thoughts, write really good sentences, and have an understanding of syntax, not only do they enjoy that very much, but 
it it yields tremendous returns in their both their learning, as I said previously, of content and as they move through the grades. So I think you touched upon this a little bit, but I'd love to just sort of get the full picture of <clears throat> what is the typical writing program that you see in your work, you know, uh, around the country? If there's such a thing as a typical writing program. There isn't a typical writing program in the middle and high school. Most of us, when we go into teaching, we know how to assign writing. Mm -hmm. We know how to make what we think are very good writing assignments. We don't know how to teach writing. And there's a difference between giving a good assignment and really explaining to our students how to write well. And so in middle and high schools, there is no program. There are really no programs that I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm. uh, mainly there are assignments, and there are teachers who are very disappointed in the products of these assignments. In elementary schools, we see a big emphasis on personal narratives, uh, units on poetry or writing mysteries, there's a great deal of attention paid on to memoirs and free writing, which is done with very little guidance and feedback that would be useful for a student moving forward. And the other thing we see in elementary schools is that very little of the writing is embedded in the actual content that they're studying. Thinking about if I were to enter into a school that was using your writing program, what would look different, and what would I notice about the student writing? So what you would notice at the student writing, whether it was in an elementary school or middle or high school, would be enormous emphasis on sentences. Sentences are the bedrock of everything, and they're not given enough emphasis in schools. So there are sentences that really will inform the way students think and helps teachers check comprehension. For example, a way of asking students to write an answer to a question would be, why did the colonists live near rivers? Mm -hmm. And we would change that to, the colonists lived near rivers because they needed them for transportation. The colonists lived near rivers, but they found other ways to transport people and goods. The colonists lived near rivers so they were very useful to them in their trading. When you ask a question and you ask the students to finish these sentences with because, but, and so, you're asking them to think far more deeply about the subject, and we can go right up through high school with the Industrial Revolution being an important period of history because, but, and so. They're going to think much more deeply, and the teacher's going to understand much more deeply how much they're grasping the main points of what he or she is trying to get across. The emphasis on building these complex sentences and teaching them written language structures is critical. Most students and many adults write the way they speak. Mm -hmm. And in fact, written language has very different structures. So we can begin at a very young age teaching students those written language structures. It's a long answer to your question, but what you would see that's very different is this tremendous emphasis on sentences right from the beginning, right through the grades, and these sentences are embedded in content, all content. 
And so, will the sentences, even when they're they're more, let's say, advanced and they've gotten a little bit more fluent, like the but because so sort of structure, they they sort of you know are thinking that automatically, right? Dare to dream. Yeah. Is there a point in which you're moving on to? Paragraphs, revising, drafting, the, the big writing process cycle? So, paragraphs are taught. You, you can't write a decent paragraph if you can't write a decent sentence. Interestingly enough, that's not fully implemented in most classrooms. We're assigning paragraphs before our children really have the syntactic control to write good sentences. But you move on to paragraphs and... In this model that we feel works very well, we use an outline. And that outline looks like a linear, very simple outline. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's not bubbles, it's not webs, it's not Venn diagrams. It's very simple. It follows the format of a paragraph. And when they're taught to use this outline, the benefits are that they will stay on topic not repeat themselves and bring in irrelevant material and they'll focus on the main point of what they're writing and once they can write a good paragraph it's not that difficult to move on to an outline for a good composition as far as revising the sentence work informs revising and the paragraph work and the outlines inform the structure and the substance of what you're revising And most teachers are very comfortable with the editing piece, Mm. capitalization, punctuation, spelling, whereas we're much more focused on the revision piece, which is actually the improvement of the writing. In the work that you're doing with schools and implementing the program and professional development, what surprises you most about the students? So what surprises me most is how enthusiastic they are when they're not being overwhelmed by five-paragraph compositions in fourth grade that they have no clue about how to develop, when they're being asked to write about things that where they don't have sufficient knowledge about the topics to put on paper, And we find a great deal of enthusiasm because look how we're starting. We're starting at a sentence level. We're giving them structure to write a paragraph. We're telling them the differences between a paragraph that explains a problem and a solution, a cause and an effect. So these are things that are interesting for them, and they're very empowering to teachers. Because in our experience, no one has really been taught this in their teacher education courses. One of the things that I can sort of say that's really interesting about the program from having access to a student who has is, is been instructed in it is that some adults will assume any sort of structure around writing is instantly going to produce something formulaic or wrote or something that is like the, uh, the, the five-paragraph essay, as you mentioned. What I've seen is that structure actually can sort of embolden creativity and actually help not just and not just creativity but clarity which is of course the 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 siren call of a writing teacher is like I want to know what you intend to communicate and I want to be able to understand it and I don't want to have to read your mind to understand that so it's clarity but there's also a degree to which I feel like this does support and and kind of 
emphasize there's a creative element to it. There's no question that it unleashes creativity. And just the way practicing the piano or dribbling a ball up and down a basketball court is going to enhance the skills and the creativity of an athlete or a musician or an artist that has Mm -hmm. to learn certain techniques. Why we think writing can just sort of flow the way we speak is really nonsense. And we have to get past that if we're going to help our children think with greater clarity, read with greater understanding, write with greater coherence. And this really can be done. And unfortunately, the children who need this the most are not getting it. Mm -hmm. But in our experience, we get requests for training in this model from every demographic, every socioeconomic level. Our target are low-income underserved students. But when we open up our courses, we have teachers from some of the most elite settings whose Mm -hmm. students are really struggling to write. And there's an assumption because they tested into or were accepted into elite settings, they are verbal and bright, but that doesn't mean they can write well. So Yeah, it's fascinating because I would think that if you talk to any published author or anyone who, you know, writes for a living, the notion that it comes easy to them would be something that they would very quickly try to dispel. But one of the things that's troubling to us Uh, those of us who are disseminating this method is once in a while you see published authors criticizing formulaic programs and saying, as you said earlier, that it stifles creativity when in fact we feel it does exactly the opposite. And this kind of embedded thinking about creativity really has been pretty destructive for our students. They've got to have a way to do what they are called upon to do repeatedly. This conversation reminds me that some children seem to emerge from the womb with the ability to learn how to read. And we do know some things about reading instruction, but we have these assumptions as educators and and as parents that they should just be able to do this. They should be able to produce, you know, coherent and compelling prose. Because, and I'm, I'm always sort of, I'm always thinking, why? Why do we assume this? Is it because it looks easy to some people? Is it because we can read a beautiful piece of writing and for some reason we believe, or even a clear piece of writing, we believe that this should be something that should just emerge through osmosis, you know, through almost exposure to written language, exposure to text should somehow impart the ability to produce text? Well, you know, writing is producing something. Reading is processing what's on a page. That's a very significant difference. When you write, you're really producing your a whole range of, of activities that you're called upon to do in a variety of settings, which is tremendously different from reading something either for pleasure or something that's assigned. And so I don't know why it's taken educators this long to understand. I know that I got my first really important feedback about writing when I went to college. Today's students, because of the newer standards, don't have that luxury. Their writing is being assessed 
before the teachers have really been given the tools mm -hmm. to help them write better. So there's also something backwards in the way we're dealing with the newer standards. A lot of the standards are wonderful, and I'm glad they're out there, because the emphasis on expository writing, argumentative writing, is long, long overdue. But without giving teachers a way to meet these standards, we're not doing anybody a service. What are I think we spoke to some of this, but in, in the work that you're doing, um, and thinking about both working with educators, working with teachers and principals, and thinking about working with students and looking at student work, what are the you've spoken about some of this, but what are the persistent challenges in sort of, you know, changing the mindset around writing? Well, most students that you ask, so, you know, how, what do you think of your writing? Do you like the writing that you are assigned in school? Too many students will say they hate writing. They're giving assignments that they're not really prepared to do very well. And we can go through schools and look at bulletin boards and see writing that's being celebrated that really is very poor. Mm -hmm. And when they get to the upper grades, they reach the, the point where their writing is not appropriate for what they're being asked to do, either in testing situations or in assignments. So there's a certain amount of frustration that students feel about writing. And I know from looking at my own grandchildren's journals, they write a lot without making a whole lot of sense, and I hope they won't be listening to this, <laughs> but they're given a lot of brownie points for writing a lot. Yeah. And so they repeat themselves, or they go off target, and I'd like to say it's not just limited to my grandchildren, but they, the writing too much, the going off topic, the putting in irrelevant information is what we see in an effort to uh, satisfy this requirement that more is better somehow. And you walk through schools and you see pages of written work, but if you look at them carefully, they're too much like each other or, or they don't make a lot of sense. And that's troubling. They're not learning anything about text structure. They're not learning anything about varied ways of presenting sentences and how they can produce their thoughts with more clarity and more organization. And we know they can be taught to do this. There's some standards they think generally ELA people get. They get like key ideas, you know, main idea and, and, and key details. They get like theme, they get... Um, they get vocabulary. When it comes to structure, an author's structure, I think it's that's when people begin to have that sort of thousand-yard stare where they don't want to necessarily admit they don't know what that is or how to teach it. And I'm just wondering if you can speak to a little bit about what the role of structure, both in reading and its relationship to writing, is. Anything that you learn about text structure when you're teaching a student to write is going to enhance their reading comprehension. So if you teach children how to present a problem and then how to present its solution, whether it's in a single paragraph or in an essay, when they encounter that in print, their ability to pull out the salient information is going to be much more effective. So... When we think of presenting information in sequence, and we think about sequence and text structure, 
Simultaneously, many times, when people think about sequencing information, they typically see, think about first, next, then finally. Yeah. You know, a narrative, chronological structure. But that's not the only structure they can be thinking about. For example, when students write a compare and contrast paper or paragraph, they don't necessarily know that their most important points should really come last because the reader is going to remember best what they've read last. When they begin to write persuasive papers and move on to arguments, there are ways to sequence your claims and your counterclaims so that the reader will understand the points you're making with far more clarity. And students are not going to learn, even the student that comes into this world reading fluently, mm -hmm. as you mentioned earlier, even writers don't often learn this by themselves. They have to be taught this by someone who knows something about writing. And once they learn it, it's extremely powerful in their thinking, in their reading, and in their writing. Because they're analyzing text and reading text with far more comprehension than they would if they weren't focusing on text structure. Getting back to the sort of persistent challenges, what are the, some of the, and again, you know, I think we're, you've touched upon this a little bit, but I want to know more about what are the persistent challenges of the adults. You talked about the students. You know, every teacher feels like this is one more thing I have to learn. This yeah. is one more thing I have to do in the middle of teaching five classes a day, writing evaluations, pushing paper around, going to meetings, and what we're trying to do is to show them that if they learn about this model, their work is going to be easier, not harder. And they're going to want what really most teachers want, good outcomes. Teachers are very excited when they see they've made a difference, when they see their students are learning. And I'm not just talking about scores. I'm talking about what you feel in front of the classroom as you watch your children's, not just their writing, but their language improve and their ways of expressing themselves orally improve. Because the structures that we teach them in writing flow right into the way they speak. We encourage debates. We encourage them to read their work aloud. We encourage them to critique work. And this really enhances so many skills that a teacher can't help but be impressed. The other thing that teachers feel is a very big challenge is how can I teach writing and also cover what I'm supposed to cover? Mm -hmm. And our position is that you're going to be covering it better and more effectively if you embed the structures that we share with you into the content. If instead of writing the colonists fled, if they're asked when and they're asked where did they flee and why did they flee, you're going to get far more information. The reader is going to get far more information. And if they begin that sentence with when, you're going to have a written language structure that doesn't appear as often in oral language as it does in writing. And we teach these written language structures very explicitly. So at a fairly young age, you have children writing in forms that you wouldn't necessarily have if they didn't learn to do this from their teachers. Thinking about very young age, what does the writing instruction look like, say, at kindergarten, first grade, when they're still sort of 
forming, forming their letters? So in kindergarten and in first grade, we take the forming of letters and starting with capitals and ending with periods and learning their up and even how they hold a pencil. That's their big job. That's what they have to do. But the activities that will prime the pump for the writing that we do as they move along begins in oral exercises. And you can have children starting their sentences with when or extending their sentences with because, but, and so, or explaining why something happens or adding when something you can have children doing this orally in kindergarten and first grade and they listen to each other and they produce these extended responses which serve them so well both in their oral and later in their written language one of the things that there's two points that you're you're hitting upon that I think are really really important I'm really glad you said them one is the relationship of speaking and listening to writing and reading. Um, I think too often the way literacy and ELA instruction has functioned has been these things in sort of isolation. And speaking and listening just is something that you want to sort of quiet down because you have a noisy classroom. When we're in schools, one of the things that I often notice is a quiet classroom is not necessarily one where there's a lot of learning going on. A noisy classroom isn't necessarily either, but I sort of look at that as being like, okay, are they all engaged? Are they talking to each other about topics? Are they talking to each other about language? Are they even using, for example, one of the things that makes me really happy is if I'm in a classroom with English language learners, are kids who share the same home language talking to each other in their language in order to support understanding of a, of a text or a topic. So that's one thing that I'm really glad that you, a point you made. The other thing that, as someone who, who taught writing, I always thought is, God, it's lonely, you know? And the way it's taught is often like, you go into your room and, and you know, go, go to your shed and, and write something. But I think the way I function as a professional, as an adult, is I have to sort out my ideas with other people. I have to collaborate with others. I have to sometimes put my writing and let other people, you know, hack away at it and critique it and, and sometimes say, you are not making any sense. What are you trying to say? So I'm really glad to hear you say that, you know, writing sometimes has to involve conversation and collaboration. I want to shift gears a little bit and um, talk a little bit about your work with students with language-based learning disabilities. And first, I just want to ask you to define a language-based learning disability for our listening audience. When we talk about language-based learning disabilities, we're talking about both written and spoken language. So one of the common threads that we see with many learning disabled students are word retrieval problems, for example. And some students deal with this by becoming very quiet, and others talk on and on without getting to the point because mm -hmm. they can't really find the words that would express what they want to say easily. But there are children who have difficulty matching a sound with a symbol, so decoding basic, you know, the basic alphabet, making words, making sentences, reading paragraph, very difficult for them. There are children who have difficulty in almost every area of spoken and written language. And what we found with this population over a number of years is that the way we were teaching them 
is the way most children should be taught, but you change the rate for children who don't have learning and language disabilities. So what might take two or three years to get a child decoding fluently and accurately or to be writing coherently may take far less time with a child who's developing without those problems. It was interesting that when we began to give courses both in reading and writing at the Windward School, initially they were attended by speech and language people, resource room people, special educators. As the years went on, the population attending those courses, and many of them had waiting lists, the population attending those courses were mainstream teachers from a range of schools because these strategies really worked for all children. And even the children who are born knowing how to read, for example, when the rubber hits the road at the end of third or beginning of fourth grade and they have to decode words they've never seen or heard before, it's helpful for them to have strategies for decoding them and when you teach them directly, they have a tool to use. When you teach these writing skills directly, it's a powerful tool that gives so much confidence to these kids who really struggle with language. Those are English language learners. Those are children with learning and language difficulties. And those are children who come from what we call language impoverished environments, where they don't hear very much language growing up, other than some commands, mm -hmm. where there are not very many books read to them, where standard English is not part of their experience. So for all of these children, they need language experiences, and we're feeling more and more that writing, even the pre-writing activities, are a way of bringing them into the world of language far more effectively than we used to think. You mentioned English language learners, and you and I have, have talked about this, but what are you finding in, in the work that you're doing around writing and English language learners? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. So, in we at this point have a set of slides that show, we, we have a poster that says who, what, where, when, why mm -hmm. in front of every Writing Revolution classroom. And the teacher will point to it very frequently in an effort to get students to extend their responses. But you didn't tell me how that happened. You didn't tell me why it happened or when. We have pictures of those posters in Mandarin, in Spanish, in Italian. This foreign language teachers um, use this program with great um, success, typically at the high school level. But even young children in, um, in one of our schools who primarily spoke Mandarin were able to move into English very nicely, having begun using the strategies of our model in their, you know, primary language. Getting back to, for just a moment, students with language-based learning disabilities, what are some common misconceptions about these students and, and the challenges that are real and the challenges that might be based in misconceptions? Uh, in, in responding to this, I'm going to focus on language because in my experience, that's the primary challenge that these children have and that these teachers have. So what are the common misconceptions? He's shy. Okay, 
she's not too bright. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks on and on and doesn't know what he's talking about. They're not viewed, even by many teachers and their parents, as having a language problem. A language disability is a very hidden handicap. If a youngster is blind or deaf or struggling with cerebral palsy, something that's obvious to the observer, a network of support is usually there for parents in the outside world. And even when you're in a supermarket or what, people recognize that there's a disability mm-hmm. that has to be you know, noted. This is not true with language problems. These individuals are all around us, and they're not really recognized as having this struggle. So the misconceptions are very damaging to these individuals emotionally, socially, and academically very difficult. The pace of asking questions of discourse in a classroom is very, very rapid. Seconds, a teacher asks a question, a student answers. A teacher asks a question. If that student takes a little bit longer to formulate a response, it's, Mary, can you help John? Mm -hmm. And John will know at a very early age where he is in the pecking order. He needs Mary's help, okay? We've all done this before, you know. So those misconceptions are not addressed aggressively enough, even among special education programs in teacher training institutions. The cohort of people that really get this are your speech and language people. So I I think I answered both parts here because I think that the more we help teachers and very often parents and anyone interacting with the child, including siblings, understand that this is really a struggle and that this is a struggle that can last through a lifetime. So any strategy or road that we can give them to enhance their language is a gift and we should do everything we can to enable this so this is the question that we ask all of the people who sit down for podcasts with us and it's what we affectionately call the magic wand question and we've been talking really grounded in reality grounded in research grounded in like what you're seeing in schools and in classrooms but if we could just for a moment, dispense with all that. If you were given a magic wand, and upon waving this magic wand could convince, let's say, every teacher at the primary level to make one change in their instructional practice, what would it be? I think I would like teachers to understand how critically important it is for them to learn how to help children express their thoughts more fluently in writing, but also when they're speaking, to extend their responses, give them ways to organize their thinking in ways that really are both empowering. It it produces a better product, but it's also so empowering. And I think that's what I would like to do, to, to enable as many teachers as possible to have the tools to help the millions of students out there who are really struggling with something they need to succeed. So what's next for you, Judy? What are you, what are you, what are you working on? What do, you, what do you got cooking? Well, with the benefit of an excellent co-author, Natalie Wexler, we have a book coming out explaining our model, and it's coming out this summer. 
And while writing it, it was interesting how much I thought about and learned about more things about writing. <laughs> so it proved my points about writing pretty well. That's pretty meta. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, great. Thank you so much for your time. And um, this has been great. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.